I invite you to stand with me as we read the scriptures. Acts chapter 2, 36 through 41 is our passage. Acts 2, beginning in verse 36. We are picking up right at the end of Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, and we're going to look at the response of those who heard. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 36. This is the word of God. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. All of God's people said, Amen. You may be seated, and let us go to the Lord in prayer now. Our God and Father, we come thankful for the scriptures that are given to us for our encouragement, our instruction, uh, to give us hope, uh, to direct us in the way of life everlasting. And as we come uh, back to this sermon and the response to this sermon, I pray that this word would be a living word because the Spirit of God makes it living to us, giving us ears to hear, uh, hearts to uh, receive and to be cut to the heart just as they were, and to believe the things that we read here. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, just a word about the notes that I passed out. There's a big table on the back, and I'm not going to do anything with that table, so you can ignore it for now. Uh, You can look at it later if you'd like, but uh, sometimes as I'm preparing these messages, I try to go deeper on something, and that can sometimes lead to further material. And sometimes I just want to get that material for your consideration and perhaps we can interact with it at at another time. Uh, But the front page of your notes has effectively what I want to communicate to you today. Last week we worked through Peter's remarkable, spirit-filled, empowered sermon on the day of Pentecost. It was a remarkable message. It was a message that Uh, was used by God to bring about the conversion of 3,000 souls to the Lord. And while we come to the end of this sermon in verse 36, we we know that there's a sense in which any time a sermon is preached, there's a sense in which the sermon is not done until you apply it and respond to it. That is the aim of biblical preaching, just as it was in Acts chapter 2, is to call for a response, to call for faith, to call for repentance, to call to action, as he does here. And so it must be for us. We've heard the sermon re-preached, the sermon on the day of Pentecost. Many were, were cut to the heart, many turned to the Lord, and so likewise, we need to consider our response to these things today. As we look at this response to the message, I think what we have summarized for us here is Christian Discipleship 101. 
If we were to ask the question, what does it mean to be a Christian? I think this passage will help answer that. There's many passages we could go to answer that, but this is certainly one of them. And what we see, in essence, is that to be a Christian, to respond to the message of the good news about Christ, is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to repent of your sins, to be baptized, and to follow Jesus wherever he tells you to go. We'll look next time when we come back to Acts about how the church was formed. That's what the end of Acts 2 is about. We're not going to get there quite yet to look at what the church and the community life was like. Here we are simply dealing with that initial response to the call of the gospel. And so in particular, we're going to look at uh, three topics here. We're going to first look at the conviction of sin. How the people, when they heard the word of God, they were cut to the heart. That was very important for how they responded. We'll look at that first. The second thing that we'll deal with is faith, repentance, and baptism. The word faith actually isn't mentioned here, though it's implied, and we'll talk about that. But Peter said, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. You'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So we need to think about that particular topic. And then finally, we will consider the promise. God God had given a promise, and Peter says, this promise of the Holy Spirit is for you, for your children, for all who are afar off. And so those are the three things that we need to give our attention to today. So let's pick up first with the conviction of sin in verse 37. Now even before we look at their response in verse 37, let's remember what the sermon concluded with. It was verse 36 that we looked at. We said that verse 36 is the point of the sermon. And Peter said, everybody needs to know God has made Jesus Lord and Christ. That was the point that they needed to grasp. That means that Jesus is Lord over all things. He rules over all. And then he's Christ. He is the one anointed by God to deliver his people, to bring redemption to the world. That was Peter's point. And Peter included a note in verse 36 that was designed to convict them of their sins. If you look at verse 36, you remember what he says. He says, God has made Jesus Lord in Christ whom you crucified. You see where the conviction comes in? That they were guilty of killing the Son of God, the Prince of Life. To some degree or another, they were all uh, guilty of this. Uh, and, And he's saying, you all, the men of Israel, the people gathered here, you had a part in the death of the Son of God, the one anointed to save the world. And and this, this cut them to the heart. Verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? This is so essential to a saving response to the gospel. You, you cannot respond to the call of the gospel in a believing, repentant way until you have been convicted of your sins. It will not happen. There will be no reason for you to turn from your sins to God. You'll be thinking, I'm doing just fine. Thank you very much. I'm not sure what all of this language and hubbub about Jesus is really all about. It will be a a dead word to you. It will not make any sense to you. You will not see your need for it. But when the word of God is proclaimed, 
faithfully, it, it, it comes as a sword. The scriptures are described as a living word that cuts to the heart. It divides joint and marrow. It divides soul and spirit. And the word of God discerns the thoughts and intentions of your heart. It goes right into that point. It, it, it tells you exactly who you are better than you could even describe yourself. But sometimes that happens and people don't care. They don't respond. They don't listen. They bl- blow it off. What makes the difference then? What, what makes the difference for there to be a conviction of sin? And I believe the answer is that it is the Holy Spirit's work to bring the conviction of sin. Jesus, before he died in John 16, he told the disciples that the Spirit of God would come. And we know that this is the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God has come. And he said this about the Spirit. He says, when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. This was one of the Spirit's purposes in being poured out on the day of Pentecost was not only to empower the the Christians to testify to the Word of God, and they spoke in tongues here on the day of Pentecost. It wasn't just those things. It was also to bring a conviction of sin and to awaken the people that were hearing this message. And so now they've been awakened. They're, They're cut to the heart, and they say, what shall we do? That has to be a question that you come to at some point where you have now been affected by the word and you say, I need to do something. I can't stay here. I can't be the way I am anymore. And until you've done that, then this message will not affect you and you will not respond to it. You have to come to the point, just as they did, where you say, I need to do something. What shall I do? People often think that they are doing just fine, that they are doing okay. But the scriptures tell us we're not doing okay. We are not just fine. We are a very needy people. We are needy because the poison of sin has affected all of us. And without a remedy provided by God himself, we will perish because of this fatal infection of sin. We are not okay in and of ourselves. And so that's what the the faithful preaching of the word comes to do. It comes to humble. It comes to convict. It comes to tell you, you're not okay. You need the Lord Jesus Christ to save you from your sins. You have no hope apart from him. Turn and believe and repent. This word comes as a a mirror. It shows us how sinful we are. It it sets us right before that mirror. And it's this uh, piercing a powerful, clarifying mirror. I've sometimes described that mirror as one of those really close makeup mirrors. You've seen those before. They're really scary to look into because you see all of your details, all of your flaws are right before you. And it's like a mirror like that with a 50 times magnification and it zooms right in upon your defects and you say, something's wrong with me. This is what the Word of God does. This is what the Spirit of God accompanying the Word does. So children, this is the first point in your notes about the Holy Spirit. Number one, the Holy Spirit shows us our sin so that we will look to Jesus for salvation. He drives us out of ourself so that we'll then look to Jesus, the only Savior for sinners. And so now they've come to this point. They're convicted of their sin. They say, what shall we do? How shall we respond? And Peter says... 
in his words, two things. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I want to look at faith and repentance and baptism in turn, but we'll begin with repentance because that's actually the first word that Peter uses here in his response. Perhaps he uses the word repentance first of all here because they were convicted of their sin. Peter had had ended the sermon on a note of conviction about their wickedness and and they're saying, what shall we do? And his first word is repent. Now we know that the apostolic message includes faith in Christ, that's essential, but he begins here on a note of repentance. And as I already pointed out, their their guilt, one of the aspects of their guilt was their participation in the death of Christ, in killing the innocent, spotless Lamb of God. They all had varying levels of responsibility, I'm sure, uh, some maybe less so, but Peter preached broadly to these people that had been there uh, some 50 days before when Jesus had been crucified. Now as we come to this matter of repentance, it's important for us at times review the definitions of these things. What do we mean when we use these very common words? Uh, perhaps you've noticed when you use, your, use the, lang- the English language that Sometimes you'll use a word so many times that if, if one of your children asks you what it means, you don't know how to answer them. Have you ever been there? You're like, I, it just means what it means, and I don't have a good way of defining this for you. Uh, and, and I think it can be the same way with terminology from the scriptures that we talk about, but what if our definition is not very well formed in our minds? What if we need a, a better understanding of these things? So I want to give you some sense of what does the word repent here mean? What is Peter commanding them to do? Well, I'm going to give the children just a simple definition. Uh, Children, this is the second point, number two. Repentance means that you realize that you are thinking wrongly about things and you turn and go in the other direction. It is to say, I have been wrong. I have been thinking wrong. I have therefore then been acting wrong. And I repent of that. I say, this is not the right way to think. I repent of my uh, walking in this pathway of sin. And I'm going to turn in the other direction. I'm going to go God's way. You see, when people live a, a life that is defined by sin and self, it's like going off a very well-defined forest path and then they wander off the the trail and they say, I'm going to make my own way. I'll figure this out myself. That's what people do in their rebellion against God. They say, I will do it my way. (laughs) And they make their own path, but they find that as they go down their own path of their own making, it is the path of danger and destruction and death, ultimately. And so repentance is to say, I am not going to go on my own path anymore. I repent of choosing my own way. I repent of thinking my own thoughts. I am now going to go the way that God has told me to go. It is a turning. It is a 180 in the other direction. The preaching of repentance, the call to repentance, is fundamental to a faithful delivery of the gospel message. There's, there's so many ways in which we can see the essential nature of repentance, uh, but we cannot separate repentance from believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. These, these go together. They are indeed distinct, 
but they cannot be separated. How basic is repentance? Well, Jesus in Luke 24, as he was ascending to heaven, this is what he told his apostles, Luke 24, verse 46. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached to his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Obviously, then, if we're faithful to the commission Jesus gave us, we are going to preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins to all the nations. And that's exactly the words that Peter used on the day of Pentecost. He says, repent, and you will be baptized, and you will receive the forgiveness, the remission of sins. He's saying exactly what Jesus told him to say. In Acts chapter 20, when Paul was summarizing his own ministry, he was speaking to the Ephesian elders, and he told them, he summarized for them what he had been preaching about. So this is very helpful if you want to get a sense of, okay, Paul stayed in Ephesus for some two years. What was he talking about that whole time? Well, this tells us in summary form. Acts 20, verse 20, Paul says, How I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. That was his message in summary form. He says, I call people to faith and repentance. That's what I do as I proclaim the gospel message. And we know, of course, he, he probably hit thousands of topics and worked his way all throughout the scriptures as he did so, but this is what he came back to as he called for a response. So that's repentance. Next we come to the, considering faith, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you may note that in our passage, there is no command to believe. Not in this passage. Elsewhere, the apostles do exactly that. They call to people to believe uh, in Christ. Here it is not stated, although I will, will argue that it is quite implied with what he is saying. Because he has set forth a message about the Lord Jesus Christ. He says this is... Jesus is Lord in Christ, he has ascended to God's right hand, he has died, he has risen again. He's calling them to believe all this, that they're not going to repent without believing what he has said about Christ. And even in calling them to baptism, that baptism is an association with Jesus. It's saying, I am entering into Jesus' death and resurrection, I'm identifying with him in this reality. We know that faith is an essential call because you remember, of course, the Philippian jailer, one of the most well-known examples in all of Acts. When the jailer comes and he, is, he falls down on his knees, he's about to kill himself, and, and he asks the question, what must I do to be saved? And Paul and Silas reply, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. That was the call, was to be saved. And children, this is the third point in your notes. Number three, to be saved, we must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The scriptures set forth this promise for us as as we hear the message of, of good news. It says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's this remarkable promise of the riches of God's grace to all who call upon his name. 
we, we, can, we call upon the name of Christ confessing that we can do nothing to save ourselves and all we say is, Lord, save me. I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior for sinners, and you will be saved. Next, we come to baptism. He, he also told them, you need to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Here we see the apostles, faithful to the Great Commission. They were told to go into the world and to baptize all the nations, teaching them to observe all that Jesus commanded. And and they go right to it. They say, this is how you respond to the gospel. You must be baptized in addition to all the other things that they had said. Baptism is such an important aspect of uh, this call to discipleship. Now as we come to to baptism and we, we look at this this act that is performed, this water baptism. We're commanded to, uh, to baptize with water in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we ask, what is the meaning of this? Why is this important? Well, when it comes to the, the sacraments, as we call them, when it comes to this physical ordinance that Jesus gave us, it's helpful to remember that these are physical signs that point us to spiritual realities that are ours by faith. They don't have meaning apart from believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. They don't work in and of themselves, but when it is united to faith, it is a meaningful sign of what God is doing in us. And so these these physical pictures are designed to help us. They're designed to clarify for us the meaning of being a Christian and following after Christ. And so it is with baptism. Now, one of the challenges with baptism is that there's so much we could say about it. There's so many facets to what it means. And and so as I was thinking about clarifying this for the children, I decided to to give at least one very simple aspect of it. Uh, This is not by any means exhaustive, but number four for the children is baptism is an outward bath with water where we ask God to cleanse our hearts of sin. It's not all we need to say about baptism, but that, that's based upon the fact that in 1 Peter 3, baptism is an appeal to God. We're asking him to do an inner working upon our conscience, cleansing our hearts of sin. But the, the water is the outward aspect of that. Now in your notes, you'll see I, I tried to begin summarizing all the different facets of what baptism points to. And I'm not going to go through all those or hit all those verses. You could look at those later if you'd like. But what I I do want to focus upon is what Peter actually points to himself. He says, if you're going to be baptized, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So it seems to make sense that we give our attention to that first and foremost, since that is what Peter pointed to. Now here's a topic that we, we must use caution on and care on because there have been many Mistakes made about the connection between these things. Some people, they come to this passage and they say, is this saying that I must be baptized in water absolutely, unconditionally, as the prerequisite for having the Holy Spirit of God? Is that what it's saying? Is there some order to these things? Do you, is, is water baptism always prior to a, the Spirit of God being given to me as a gift? Or, or can it be reversed? Or, and my answer is that these things are related to one another, but they are not preconditioned upon one another. 
That is to say that the outward application of water is meant to be a sign that points to the work of God on the inside, giving you his Holy Spirit. It's not that they're tied to one another. You'll find in Acts, and many passages that are in your notes, that sometimes the Spirit of God was poured out long before anybody got water baptized. It was not an order that was required to happen. And in fact, in Acts 10, when the Spirit of God is given to the Gentiles, Peter says, I guess we need to baptize these people because it looks like God has already done the inner workings, and, and then they do. So these things are related to one another. They're not preconditioned upon one another, but they are meant to be associated together. To have the Spirit of God, as we have said before, as we've studied Acts and other passages, is a basic aspect of being a true Christian. When Paul wrote to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 12, he, he says that all of the Corinthian Christians were baptized into the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12, he says, For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. Now as you can see, his whole point is to tell you that all the Christians in Corinth, they were all part of the body of Christ. And he says this this means that all of you were baptized into the spirit of God. This possession, this indwelling of the spirit is basic to you being a Christian. Now, there's much more that we could, we could say about the meaning of baptism, about the implications of it, but one of the things I want to do is to draw this to some application for us as we once again speak about the matter of baptism. It's important that any time that we encounter God's word, that we treat it as a living word for us today, it is relevant, it is applicable, it is important for us. So how should we apply Peter's words to ourselves? Well, first I would say, if you have not been baptized, then the call of the gospel upon your life is to repent of your sins, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and to be baptized. That's what Peter has said. So if that's where you are today, this is the call of the gospel upon your life, and I would urge you to act upon it. From the youngest to the oldest in this room, this call of the gospel is for you. You're never too old or too young to come to Jesus Christ. You can come at any time. He calls you. He he beckons you to come to himself, and he, he offers his gift of salvation. And so the call is, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And as you do so, by believing and by turning from your sin, you commit to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. This baptism, it obligates you to a life of faithful service to him. It calls you to be his servant in all things. It calls you to put away your sins and to walk in newness of life for the rest of your life. Now secondly, for those of us who have been baptized, I want to remind you and remind myself what this baptism obligates us to. Whether you were baptized as an infant, as a small child, at age 30, at age 70, the call of baptism remains the same for you. The older writers sometimes spoke about the neglected practice of improving your baptism. 
That's very strange language, right? Improving your baptism. Like, how can you improve upon something that God designed and it's something that he does? And It doesn't mean making your baptism better, okay? That's not what the word means. In essence, it means acting like you're a baptized person more and more. That's, in essence, what improving your baptism means. I think we've lost a consciousness of the importance of baptism in our Christian lives, and I think we need to regain that sense, that, that call of baptism and the call of the gospel upon our lives. It's a meaningful thing. We need to reflect upon our baptisms. Martin Luther was a good example of this as he daily battled against temptation and sin. One of his key reminders, amongst other reminders, was, I am a baptized man. And the call of God on my life is to resist my sins, to resist Satan, and to live for the Lord Jesus Christ in holiness. He would remind himself about these things. That baptism is is God's identity marker upon you. It's the Lord Jesus Christ saying, I have called you. You are my servant. Walk in the way that I point you to walk. You are not your own. You belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot live for yourself any longer. Paul, of course, points to this in Romans 6. He he says, Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. And so Paul is saying, don't you remember what happened to you? You were baptized into Christ Jesus. This mark of God was put upon you. Now you need to live like these things are true. Paul is saying that this baptism, is this, it's a picture for you of how you died to sin just as Jesus died on the cross and was laid in the tomb. And he says, now you, you rise up and you walk in newness of life. You live like a new person. You are a new creation in Christ. Live in that way. And so Paul is in essence saying, act like your baptism means something because it does mean something. And so I would ask each of us, brothers and sisters, are you living like you were baptized. You know that that question isn't meant to say, are you living a perfect life? That's not what I'm asking you. I'm asking you, are you, are you doing this death and resurrection pattern, putting to death sin, living in newness of life to God? Are you becoming increasingly that new man, that new woman whom God has created in Christ? And perhaps one of the reasons that baptism is uh, at times ignored or diminished or uh, not considered very important is because we have such a scandal in the church of Christ of baptized people who don't live like baptized people. When baptism is seen as a dead sign and has no meaning whatsoever to our daily Christian lives, perhaps it is because people are treating it that way, because they are not living as if it is true that they are to walk in newness of life. And so every time that we witness a baptism in our congregation, it is such a good opportunity for us to reflect upon our own baptisms. It is important to recommit ourselves to the meaning of what we are seeing placed right before our eyes. 
And so this is the call of God upon us, no matter at what point in in our lives we have been baptized, and it's the call of God to be baptized if you are not. Now finally, I'd like to go to the promise of verse 39. Peter, he has commanded these things, but now he lays out a promise that God had made. He says in verse 39, For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Do notice the first word of verse 39, for, for the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off. And, and what he has just said is that if you repent and you're baptized, you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then he says, explanatory statement, this promise is for you and your children and all who are afar off. Now, I would paraphrase this for you in this way. What is the connection? I think this is basically what Peter is saying. In light of what I have said about this gift of the Holy Spirit, know that the promise of the Holy Spirit is for you, and it is for your children, and for all those whom the Lord will call to himself. That's my paraphrase. Perhaps we could add a few, uh, repentance and baptism there. But the promise of the gift of the Holy Spirit is, I think, what he's talking about. Now, I want to take this opportunity while we are here at verse 39, knowing that I may not be at verse 39 for a long time from now, to ask the question, is this passage relevant to whether we practice household baptism? And I know that there's more that topics that we could develop out of this verse, more things that we could apply it to, but I want to ask that question. And one of the reasons is that it is one of the most Uh, important verses, I believe, in the question of whether we practice household baptism. The question is this. Should the children of believers be baptized along with them, or should children of believers be held back from baptism until they personally and individually make a profession of faith in Christ and commit to living a life of repentance? Now, some may not like that phrase, held back, but what I'm envisioning is when there is a baptism of a family coming into the church and the adults are baptized, the question is, do we not include the children at that point in particular? Imagining that particular scenario. Well, as as you know, our our standards uh, that we confess in this church teach that we should baptize the children of believers along with their parents. That's what it teaches And some have called this practice uh, infant baptism. And I do not prefer that terminology because it is not reflective of the biblical pattern that we see here. Now, is it true that we baptize infants? That's true. Nevertheless, what the scriptures talk about more is the household unit. This is what we find reflected throughout Acts. It's what we find reflected in the Old Testament. And we don't baptize infants in isolation from a household. We don't Uh, go down to the local grocery store and we just baptize any infant that we run into, we baptize households. So when an infant is born, they're part of the household, they're added to the household, and so we baptize them because of that. So the question is, is this passage relevant to at least one, uh, one of the reasons that we believe this practice is biblical? And I would argue it is. 
So I want to give you a few points on this, and as we go through these points, we're going to come to the final point being we need to take hold of the promises of God. Whatever you exactly end up with believing about this practice of baptism, I hope that all of us are clear and unified on the amazing promises of God to our children. So let's hit a few points on this. Let's seek to understand verse 39 in greater detail. First, when Peter says the promise is to you and your children and to all who are afar off, what is the promise that he's talking about? What is the offer, as it were, implied here? And my answer is that the promise is the gift of the Holy Spirit. The gift of the Holy Spirit. The reason I I believe that is because there are other two uses of the word promise in Acts chapter 1 and in Acts chapter 2 both refer to the gift of the Holy Spirit, that that was the promise of the Father to give the Holy Spirit. Secondly, another reason I believe that is Peter has just quoted Joel chapter 2. And what was Joel 2 about? It was that the Spirit of God would be poured out upon not only the adults and the heads of households, but the Spirit of God would be poured out upon the children, the young men, the young women, the maidservants, the men servants. Everybody was the point. The Spirit of God will be poured out on everybody. There was this greater fullness of the Spirit's outpouring, and the children were included in it. And this was an exciting moment, and that's why I think Peter is saying, hey, the promise isn't just to you heads of households, you older people, but to your children as well. And the Old Testament scriptures had prophesied that this outpouring of the Spirit would come. Uh, I so love the words of Isaiah 59, 21, and I, I would say that this is one of those passages you should pray over your children Uh, If you're thinking about your desire for them to walk in the faith, please use Isaiah 59, 21. What does it say? As for me, says the Lord, this is my covenant with them, my spirit who is upon you and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your descendants, nor from the mouth of your descendants' descendants, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. What a promise that is, isn't it? That the Spirit of God would rest not only upon that present generation, but it would come to the next generation and then the next generation. That is what we pray for as we seek God for the ble- our ble- the, His blessing upon our children. So the promise. What is the promise? It's the gift of the Holy Spirit. I think that's the primary uh, background of that word promise. Secondly, why does Peter say to you and to your children and to all who are far off? It is important when you read the word to you to remember that the primary audience he's speaking to are heads of households. If you you study the, the whole passage, if you look for the references to who he's talking to, it's things like men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, men of Israel. In fact, the word is gender specific. He's talking to men primarily. I'm granted there was probably some women and children there, I imagine, But predominantly, primarily, he's talking to Jewish heads of households as he preaches this message. And that should not be a surprise because this was the day of Pentecost. It was one of the pilgrim festivals in which the males, in particular, were required to go up to Jerusalem. So it's not a surprise that it's predominantly male heads of households that he's speaking to. And he says, it's not just you men, maybe some of the women there, but to your children as well and to all those who will be called from afar off. 
Why does he mention the children? Well, remember, this language to you and to your children is classic covenant language. It's classic language drawn from the Old Testament that these Jewish heads of households would have understood as covenant language. They had lived for thousands of years understanding that their children are members, co-members with them of God's people. They knew their children were not excluded from God's people. Going back to Genesis 17, the very first reference of such language, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. So when God covenanted with his people, with with Abraham way back here, he's including the children with them. And I could multiply references uh, to all the ways in which the children, the next generation, were included with their parents as God covenanted, as God made promises to his people. I just want to read one more Old Testament reference, though we could multiply them, and you'll find them on the back of your notes. Deuteronomy 29, 10 through 13. This speaks about God entering into covenant with his people, and listen to how it specifies. All of you stand today before the Lord your God, your leaders and your tribes and your elders and your officers, all the men of Israel, your little ones and your wives, also the stranger who is in your camp from the one who cuts your wood to the one who draws your water, that you may enter into covenant with the Lord your God and his, into his oath, which the Lord your God makes with you today, that he may establish you as a people to himself. Now, as you look at this passage, of course, this doesn't speak directly to the question of baptism. I understand that. What I'm trying to impress upon you is the consistency of the Bible in recognizing the reality of a household, a household in fellowship and in covenant with God, a household that is recognized as members of the body of Christ. And so that is what Peter is doing. He's speaking to these male heads of households, and he mentions the children as well. What does he mean when he says those afar off? What's that group that he's talking about? Well, I think it's rather obviously it's the Gentiles. I think he's saying the Gentiles who are not men of Israel, men of Judea, all these other people that are way out there that are not part of the covenant people of God, they're going to be called as well. This promise goes beyond the borders of Israel, goes beyond the Jewish people, and it will extend itself to the whole world. Uh, That same language Paul uses in Ephesians 2. He says, you who were once far off, speaking to the Gentiles, have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now, if we were to move beyond Acts 2.39 and we say, how does Luke, the writer of Acts, speak about the household throughout the book of Acts? And those of a Baptist perspective will point out that all these household baptisms in Acts or or mentions of households, do not specifically say that infants or small children who did not profess faith were baptized. That is true. They do not say that. But what I want us to reckon with is why is the language of household even used? Is it possible that our individualistic assumptions affect how we read these passages? If you think about a a 1970s evangelistic uh, meeting somewhere, 1970s, 1980s, and you you look at that, you think, did you ever hear them say, you will be saved and your household? That, That language is sort of just dropped out of our speech. 
I, I almost never hear such statements made uh, anymore, and I wonder, why is that? What have we lost that we don't say, you will be saved and your household, which is exactly what Paul said to the Philippian jailer. Is the household a meaningful category with implications for how we view the children of that household? Let's just hear a few of the passages about households in Acts once again. Acts 11, 13 through 14, it, this is uh, Peter coming to the household of uh, Cornelius, the Gentile, uh, and it says this, he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house who said to him, send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who will tell you words by which you and your household will be saved. Not just Cornelius, but his whole household, it included probably servants, slaves as well. Acts 16, 15, and when, this is Lydia, when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. Same chapter, going to the Philippian jailer. So they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night, washed their stripes, and immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them, and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. Acts 18.8, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. And I'm not trying to dig deeply into any of these particular passages and work through all the intricacies of it. I'm simply presenting to you how frequently the language of household is presented as a meaningful category by Luke as he writes this book. And wherever you land on this particular question, these are questions that you need to reflect upon. And and the table on the back of your notes, perhaps we can interact about that sometime. But I want to come back to the promise I want to press upon each of us, uh, no matter what our persuasion is about this matter of baptism, do we hold fast to the promises of God? Do we embrace the promises as the things that we live on as we parent our children? That's what was given here, uh, promises to you and to your children. The children are specifically referenced here uh, for a purpose, we need to understand that while water baptism does not automatically save our children or save any of us on its own, that it is part of the blessings of God that he gives to us in his covenant promises. There are real blessings to growing up in a home that believes in the Lord Jesus Christ and follows him. Immense blessings. Uh, for those of you that did not grow up in a Christian home, I'm sure you can speak very personally and experientially to the difference between uh, growing up in a non-Christian household and then perhaps what you've set out to do in your home as a, as a follower of Christ. It's very different. And the reason that the promises of God are so important for us as we seek to raise our children in the truth of God is that the promises help us avoid two very dangerous things. One of the things the promises do is they help us avoid trying to save our children ourselves. Because God says he's going to pour out his spirit upon them, not us. We don't have a spirit pourer out that we can do anything with. We just cry out to God for him to do it, right? So it guards us against that. We say, I rely on the promises of God. I pray the promises of God and I wait for them to come to pass. 
But the promises also help us in another way. They help us from despairing that our children will ever be saved. You know, as we go through significant struggles in that uh, task that God has given us, that stewardship that he's given us to parent, we fear, we struggle, we struggle to believe that God will do his perfect work in our children And it is for us to hold on to the promises, even as we feel like we might be falling off a cliff. The promises are very stable and secure, and they they will be those things that keep us going. And so I want us to, to end on that note of believing the promises of God. This is a test of faith for each of us. Do I believe the promises? Do I pray them? Do I act in light of them? Do I act diligently in light of the promises of God? knowing that he can, can and will use us in this task of sharing the word with our children. Well, and I think what gives us a, a sense of, uh, of confidence as we do this work is to read one of the promises of God. So that's where I want to end today, is to read Isaiah 44, 2 through 5. And we heard this earlier in the service, but this is about the outpouring of the Spirit upon us and upon our children And we can pray that this will be so. Here's what it says. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. They will spring up among the grass. Like willows by the watercourses, one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob. Another will write with his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. That's the amazing work of the Spirit of God in our, our children, isn't it? They name themselves by the God of Israel. They say, I am the Lord's. It's not just you saying, you are the Lord's. That's, that, that's true that there's a claim upon their lives, but they say, I am the Lord's. And this happens in due time as God works in our children by his spirit. And so, brothers and sisters, let us pray for these promises. Let us live in light of these promises and be encouraged by them. I invite you to close with me in prayer now. Our God and Father, we we come thankful for the proclamation of this good news that Jesus is Lord and Christ And I pray that you would work within us today to respond to this message in a saving way that if we have already trusted in Christ, that we would be recommitted to that call to discipleship and we would walk with him. Um, And for those that have not committed themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ, they have not followed through upon this, uh, this call to repentance, faith, and baptism, that they would do so, that they would call upon your name. And I pray that we would live in light of your promises as we Uh, seek to present this word to our children. Uh, We thank you that you are a God of promise. We thank you that you've given us so many promises to hold on to. And we ask that you would indeed bring forth that outpouring of the Spirit upon us, upon our congregation. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.